turn with me again to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Someone asked, why did I stop without getting to verse 16? <laughs> so I'm going to get to verse 16 tonight. John chapter 3. <clears throat> and all I want to read tonight is verse 16. So out of respect for the word of God, would you please stand if you are able? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Thank you for standing. Please be seated. Let us pray together. Our Father, again, we thank you for your precious word. Make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path now. Give us all that we need, all that we need this evening, and magnify your precious Son. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. When we hear about, look at, and read of the behavior of mankind, we should be amazed, we should be amazed that there is one drop of love from the Almighty toward us. The greatest thing that can penetrate our ears, the greatest thing that could ever come to our ears, the greatest thing we could ever hear is that the creator of heaven and earth has a love for the world. The words seems to produce goosebumps. They sound too good to be true. There has never been a set of words that lifted the downcast, that reached the wandering, and that gave hope to the hopeless in God's love for the world. If we are honest, as I said, it sounds too good to be true. It is this love that is beyond comprehension. That's our thought this evening. Love that's beyond comprehension. <clears throat> so with a quick review, I say quick, with a review. We saw on Sunday that Jesus' teachings are sometimes thought-provoking, challenging, stunning, stirring, penetrating, moving, and shocking. His teachings were tailor-made to force the mind to engage in thinking. When he speaks, one is made to weigh heavily what he is saying. You just couldn't ignore Jesus' teaching. You were forced to weigh what he said and respond. When Jesus came on the scene, he didn't come to give a pep talk. 
He didn't come to give us just good advice, so to speak. He's not there to have a pep rally to just get people worked up. That's not what Jesus came to do. When Jesus spoke, his teachings force you to come face to face with spiritual reality. It stirred some questions in the human mind. One of the questions is this, am I in the family of God or not? It forced you to think, have I been given spiritual life or not? Am I in God's favor or not? Am I right with God or not? Am I traveling to heaven or not? Jesus' teaching forced you to answer those questions. Am I a child of the king or a child of the prince of the power of the air? It forced you. Who am I in my relation to God? It went to the heart, as I said on Sunday, the heart of Jesus' teaching was to get to your heart. <sighs> Let me just ask a few questions, and then we'll move on. Think with me for just a moment with these questions. Do you and I talk to God? We just did it a little while ago. Prayers just, if I could say her prayers, just simply, simply children, moving our words in the ears of the one who can move the world. Do we, let's just go a little further. Not only just do we talk to God, do we love talking to God? Maybe I should ask another question. Does God ever hear from us at all? I'm not just talking about in our corporate gathering, but does God hear from you? Is there ever a thank you from your mouth to God? Do you tell him? Do you tell him that you love him? Do you tell him that? Did God ever hear, I love you from you? See, let me see if I could just cut right to it. Let's get right to it. Where you sit and where I stand, do we love God right now? We'll just cut straight to it. Or do we hate him? Jesus' teaching stirred up these types of questions. They were made to help us examine our relationship with God. They're made to do so. Do we have a relationship with him at all? His teachings were shocking. So after shocking Nicodemus about being born again, Nicodemus had to come to grips with some questions. He had to. Who am I? Who am I? He had to answer that question. Who am I? 
I am religious, but not born again, according to Jesus. Where am I? Where am I? I am not in the kingdom, and I thought I was. He had to come to grips with those questions. Jesus said, you must be born again. Verse 3, you can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. Verse 5, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. Don't be astonished. Don't be shocked. Verse 7, you must be born again. Nicodemus is shocked. I thought I was in the kingdom, but you just told me I wasn't. You have to come to reality. You have to face those realities when Jesus spoke. So we saw Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. We saw that Nicodemus was of the Pharisees. He came to Jesus by night. And he claimed that we've come to the realization, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. He focused on the miracles, not on the teaching. This lets us know something. Knowing Jesus came from God, And believing that Jesus came from God are two different things. Nicodemus said, we know. (laughs) He never said, we believe. We know. The Pharisees are convinced that you came from God because of the miracles. And yet they killed. We can know a lot about Jesus. Listen, we can know a lot about Jesus. Nicodemus did know a lot about Jesus and not know Jesus. We can hear sermons about Jesus. We can sing songs about Jesus. We can even be around people that talk about Jesus and not know Jesus. (sighs) That example right here before us with Nicodemus. We didn't read the whole passage, but that's it. Remember, Nicodemus had read every single passage about the Messiah. Every single. Remember, he had the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. Every passage about Jesus, he had already read. He had had sung all of the Psalms that pointed to the Messiah. (laughs) Listen. Yet he did not know the Messiah. Jesus said, you must be born again. We define the, the kingdom last, well, I say last week is this week, actually. Sunday as the messianic kingdom, why I said it's a covenant agreement between the father and the son, an agreement between the father and the son. We don't want to leave out the Holy Spirit as well, in which they would justify people, listen, sanctify people, satisfy people, beautify people, and glorify people. That's what God is going to do. And that's what he's doing. It is this covenant where Jesus Christ, this kingdom where Jesus is the covenantal head over a covenantal people who enjoy God's covenantal blessing, experience his covenantal love and his covenantal Presence throughout a covenantal eternity. Simplest way I could put it. So in order to be in this great kingdom, under this great king, Jesus says something has to happen. You have to be born again. It's absolutely necessary. There's no other way in the kingdom. 
Jesus then, as we saw, illustrated the work of the Spirit, comparing it to the wind. From what we saw, the invisible and the visible. As invisible, the wind is unseen to the human eye. We can't see it. We can see the effects, but we can't see the wind. He says, unseen, we're saying it's unseen to the human eye, yet the effects are very visible. So it is with the Spirit. We cannot see him as he works. We use Lydia on Sunday. We can't see him as he works, but we just see the effects of his works. As he makes new creatures in Christ. This life that God gives has to have an outward manifestation. Can I just say that one more time? The life that God works in the inside has to have an outward manifestation. It's like when a woman, woman is pregnant. It's going to show up. <laughs> it has to show up. If the life is in the inside, it's going to manifest sooner or later. So Jesus shocks Nicodemus by saying, you have to be born again. I know you know a lot of Bible. I know you're a seminary professor. I know you understand the Hebrew language, but you must be born again. He shocked this trained theologian, and he is shocked. Jesus went on to say, you understand, if you don't understand the earthly things I say to you, how are you going to comprehend heavenly things? And he's using both in his teaching to Nicodemus, earthly and heavenly. But then Jesus gives another shock. He gives another shock. And we're going to pick it up in verse 14. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the shock is verse 16. Even so, even so must the son of man be lifted up. I love that word. Don't miss it. Must. You must be born again, and the sun must be lifted up. It's absolutely necessary. He gives another shocking, shocking statement to Nicodemus. But don't miss it. Jesus talked about the Spirit's work. Now Jesus talks about his work. That's right there in the passage. I didn't make it. Jesus said, you must be born again. Well, that which is flat, born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. We talked about the water. Whatever your conclusion on what that spirit and water is, one thing is absolutely sure. Without the spirit, there is no birth. We have to have him. Have to. He moves now to talking about himself, and he gives an interesting illustration. That's right there in verse 14. He says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Have you ever read that and scratch your head and said, why in the world is John saying this right here? It's interesting. Why would he go back to the wilderness? Well, stick with me for a little bit. If you recall the children of Israel, this is number chapter 21. The children of Israel praying for God to deliver them from the Canaanites. And guess what? God did. God did. And after God delivered them, they start journeying toward the land of Edom, and they began to complain. <laughs> Wait a minute. Deliverance and complaint. <laughs> Let's not beat up the Israelites. We do the same thing. 
a great mercy from God. And they're murmuring. It's, it seems not even go together because it doesn't. They begin to complain. We don't have any water. We don't have any water, and we're sick of this peanut butter sandwich. I'm talking about manna. I'm just <laughs> we're sick of it. What? God has taken care of you. God has delivered you out of Egypt. You could not deliver yourself. God has brought water out of rock. You don't get water out of a rock. A river in the desert where there's no water. And now we're complaining about the, the wafer that came down, the honey wafer that came down. I don't know where the honey came from other than God put it in there somehow because there are no bees in heaven. <laughs> he rained it down from heaven. It had a little honey in it, and he didn't use bees. Man, <laughs> just get me. Oh, we don't know anything. <laughs> they complain about the food. They complain about having no water. And what did God do? He sent some snakes among them. Some fiery serpent. God has all kinds of, if we could say, I don't know if you want to call it a paddle, a whip, whatever you want to call it, a belt. God has all kinds of things to spank us. <laughs> all kinds of tools. Sometimes the spanking really, really hurts. He has all kinds of things. You usually don't get a choice like he did with David. He said, well, you want, you want, you want three days of you know, famine? I mean, three months of famine? You want three days of pestilence? You want your enemies to chase you for three months? In other words, choose your own switch. That's what he used to call it when I was coming out. My grandma said, go out there and get me a switch. And if you got one too small, it said, that's too small. Go back and get another one. <laughs> Some of you don't know anything about it. You all got it pretty good. <laughs> David, choose your own switch. God usually don't give that choice and say, which one you want? You choose which one you want. No, he just actually does the choosing himself. And that's the case right here in Numbers chapter 21. These fiery serpents come, these snakes, and they begin to bite people, poisonous snakes, and they begin to die. Well, what happened? God told Moses, I want you to take a serpent. Brazen or bronze serpent, I want you to put it on the pole. I want you to raise that thing up. And when you raise it up, whosoever, I love the language, don't miss it. Whosoever, he didn't say, you know, Aaron, and he didn't say this one, but Aaron wouldn't, but he didn't say this one. He said, whosoever, when he's bitten, when he looks up at the pole, at the serpent, he shall live. Now, don't miss it. God had given careful instruction to Moses. The individual was responsible to look if he wanted to live. Are you still with me? He was responsible. God wasn't going to look for him. He was supposed to look for himself if he wanted to live. If you look, you live. If you didn't look, you died. Let me say it this way. You do know we're going to die, right? I hope you know. Unless Jesus, unless Jesus comes back, you are going to die. You will not be able to avoid that. 
It can't be like the man who was standing on the corner and death came by and he looked at death and death looked at him. And then all of a sudden he looked at death and death looked at him. And then he ran to an older wise man. He said, you're not going to believe this. I just saw death. I just saw death. What should I do? He said, well, I tell you what you do. If I were you, I'll get out of town as fast as I can. He packed up his stuff the next day. He went into the next city. And when he went into the next city, he saw death. He said, I just saw you yesterday. Death said, yeah, I just saw you yesterday too. And it's interesting that I see you today because I was scheduled to meet you today. (laughs) It's unavoidable. You can't run from it. You can't. There's no escape unless Jesus comes back. So they were commanded instructed to look and live. If you didn't look, you died. Why would Jesus give this illustration? That's why I think he gave the illustration. Jesus saying, listen, just like Moses lifted up that serpent, when you look, you live. I will be lifted up. So when you look, you live. If you don't look, you die. You die. But it's your responsibility to look. He puts it on us. So must our eyes be turned upon Jesus. He's the object that shall be lifted up. He said, I must be. I must be lifted up. That lets us know. I'll get ahead of myself a little bit. That lets us know there's no other way for salvation. No other way. All this stuff we say, you know, if God wanted to, he could have did it another way. No. And I'm going to stand by that. No, God who has all wisdom, I said all wisdom, not some, all wisdom knows exactly what would get him the most glory. And this what gets him the most glory. There is no other way. That's the only way. If it was another way, he would have done it. And I'm sticking by that. So, just like they were bitten and they were to look to that brazen serpent. So everyone who's sin bitten, if you will, must look to the cross of Jesus Christ if we're going to live. If you don't live, if you don't look, you die. And remember, just like with the Jews, the Israelites, if they didn't look and you die, it was your own fault. Did you hear what I just said? It was your own fault. God gave the instruction, and you didn't do it. And so it is right here with the Son of Man be lifted up. He said, look, we're going to have to look unto him. Oh, Isaiah 45, 22 said, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there, there's none else. What a gracious thought or statement. Look unto me. If you don't look, you die, and it's your own fault. So, Jesus, he will be lifted up here. I believe he's talking about his crucifixion. He will be lifted up so that we might believe and live. He said that whosoever, in verse 15, believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Scholars say that Jesus has, Jesus stopped talking right here. I'll let them argue with that point if they want. I think Jesus is still speaking, and I think Nicodemus is still shocked. He hadn't said anything else since verse 9, and he won't say anything else. He's in shock mode. 
Jesus knows how to shock you and just stun you. Just leave you like this. What did I just hear? <laughs> the Son of Man will be lifted up in his crucifixion, and the Son of Man will be exalted in his resurrection. But not only that, watch verse 16. We got something interesting here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice something. Jesus moved from the spirit. Jesus moved to himself. And now he moves to the father. That's right there in the passage. He moves to the father. We have a connective word. Look at it. It says for, for that connective words that connective word introduces a statement. And the statement explains why the son must be lifted up. Don't miss it. It explains why the son must be lifted up. The son must be lifted up. Must, as I say, it means absolutely necessary. There's no other way. This has to be the way, the only way. And here's the reason why he must be lifted up. Because God so loved the world. <laughs> because God so loved the world is right here in the passage. Jesus said, my lifting up is a must because of God's love. It's a must. He gives the reason why the son. God here, as I said, refers to the father. He's active in the text. Listen, can you see it? Can you see the whole Trinity working in our behalf, working for our salvation? That's what's happening. The Spirit says, I'm in. The Son says, I'm in. And here's the Father says, I'm in. They didn't use angels. <laughs> it's not in a sense. Heirs. They are helpers, as Hebrew tells us. The aid heirs of salvation. The Trinity is involved in our salvation. The Spirit's work of regeneration, the Son's work of crucifixion, and the Father's work of initiation. They're working together. <laughs> it's beautiful. We're looking at the one who planned the salvation. The planner of the salvation is the Father. Right here, the Father is the one who planned this salvation. He is the divine engineer. He did it. He pulled up the blueprint. Here is what we're going to do. The son said, I'm in. The spirit said, I'm in. It did not begin with us. Please understand that. Salvation did not begin with us. We could not come up with such a plan. Never. Angels did not come up with the plan. Surely the devils in hell definitely didn't come up with the plan. It's designed, planned by the Almighty, listen, from all eternity. God has already had this on his eternal calendar. It's a plan that he did, and it's a beautiful one. He's purposing himself, listen, he's purposing himself to move in our direction, to come to us, because we would not come to him. Our maker has put together a plan to fix the human mess called sin. He's put it together. We rebelled, but I'm going to fix that. God did something because God planned something. 
He planned to rescue sinners. And it speaks of his willingness to do so. We sinners became objects of his rescue. <laughs> why would he do that? We asked the guest, why would he, why would he even need to be rescued? It's a rhetorical question, right? Why do we need to be rescued? Some people actually don't believe they need to be rescued. They never saw it. Why do we need to be rescued? Why? Well, put simply, we've sinned in our thoughts, words, deeds, and motives. That's why we need to be rescued. We have fallen in Adam, our first father, and we need a rescue. God knowing, God knowing that human Humankind, if you want to, mankind would self-destruct. He knew it. Put together a plan, a mission, a rescue 911, if you will. <clears throat> he knew we would destroy our stewardship. He knew we would misuse, misuse his own world, his earth. He knew all of those things. He knew we would get really good at being really bad. He knew it. He knew it. And so he took a plan. He put together a plan. That plan was to rescue men, women, and even children. That plan. That plan, as I said, included his son. And what she said to his son, I'm going to prepare a body for you. Son, we got rebels down there. They don't like you. They don't like me. And Holy Spirit, they don't like you. We've created them, and they've rebelled against us. They want to be God. They don't want our rule. They don't want our instruction. They don't want our anything except our blessings. That's all they want. They want to enjoy some of the benefits, but they don't want to bow to our lordship. They don't want it. They are a mess. Now I'm going to prepare your body. And now I need you to go down. And guess what? They're not going to roll out the red carpet when you come. Son, they're going to hate you. And they're going to do everything in their power to kill you. And that's exactly what they're going to do. And then when they hang you on that cross, nail you to that cross, son, I'm going to show up in a dark cloud. But I'm not coming to rescue you. I'm coming also to pour out my judgment upon you. But son, this has to be done because I need you to live for them. But I also need you to die for them. If I'm going to be just and to justify a son, this has to happen. And Jesus said, I'll go. I'll go. And the Holy Spirit says, when you go and you die, then I'm going down and track them down. And I'm going to bring every last one of them to you. What a plan. I'll get them for you. I know they're rebellious. I'll conquer them. I'll woo them and I'll bring them and let them see how you hung on the cross. I'll do that. I'll give them eyes to see. I'll peel back the layers so that they can see the beauty and loveliness in you and bow and fall down before you and worship. I'll do that. I'll track them down. Oh, who doesn't want something like that? Folks who are insane. 
I will march them to Calvary. That's what I'll do. All for your glory and for their good. So the father planned this, but tells us the reason for the plan also. That's right there in the passage. It shows us the very heart of God. Why, why, why did he make this plan? <laughs> it's right there. Because he has a love for the world. That's all it tells us. It's because he loved the world. What? What do we mean by world? Several things could be said about the world. It could be his hostile system under satanic influence. Some people say that's what it is. It can mean mankind in general. It can mean believers only. It can mean these things. At least one thing is clear. It's not talking about trees. (laughs) That's not what it's talking about. not talking about rocks. Not talking about automobiles. That's not what it's talking about at all. He didn't give his son for a rock. That's not what he's referring to. But I want to drop this on you. I think when the term world, at least in this context, is used, <clears throat> I think it's simply, and I'll go out there on a limb, I think it's simply talking about other people. And why would I say that? Jesus has already shocked Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you won't be in the kingdom. I'm going to shock you even more, Nicodemus. God so loved the world. How would that register in Nicodemus' mind? I'll tell you how it would register. Nicodemus is a well-trained Jew, and he understands if Jesus mentions world, Jesus is talking about other people. Because to a Jew... It's the Jews and everybody else, the Jews and the world. And if Jesus would say, God loved the world, Nicodemus indeed in shock mode. What do you mean? He just loved the Jews. No, Jesus saying, listen, God's love goes past the Jews. That would be shocking. That's why you don't hear another comment from Nicodemus. He is shocked. Other people. Nicodemus understood, wait a minute, wait a minute, I came from the right national stock. I'm from Israel. I have the right lineage. I came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have the sacrificial system, the priesthood. I also have the kingship, David and company. Jesus said, goes past that. Goes past that. I got Moses and the prophets. Jesus said, it's past that. This love is not confined to one particular people group. Is not confined to one nationality or ethnicity. No, no, the promise of Jesus Christ, this great love of God goes beyond what we could ever imagine. It's not just for the young and it's not just for the old. It's not just for whites and it's not just for blacks, also for everything in between. It's this great love. Nicodemus is shocked. He doesn't even realize that he's talking to the promise. (laughs) This love of God, this great love of God goes beyond cultural barriers and national borders. It has a divine intention to it. God intended for it to go beyond. It has a divine visitation in it. God visits mankind. It tells us that 
this love is so loved by God. It's not a warm feeling or a friendly embrace. That's, that's not what he's talking about. But the highest affection that could be shown to anyone. The highest affection that can be shown. Oh, it is the one who has been insulted and offended showing this love. It is the king loving his enemies. It is the holy one loving unholy ones. It's the faithful one loving unfaithful ones. It is the righteous one loving unrighteous ones. It is the altogether lovely one loving unlovely ones. It should stir us up that God loved. But it didn't just tell us that God just loved. It said God so loved. I'm glad that little adverb is there. It tells us how much he loves. <laughs> tell us in what manner he loves. <laughs> I, love, I love it because you know something? Love is never defined in Scripture. Do you know that? From Genesis to Revelation, you'll never find a definition for love. Never. God didn't give us one. <laughs> just tell us God loves so tell us I can tell you this much it doesn't even tell us quote why we can say for his glory but it doesn't even tell us why but I can tell you this God did not love because he had to God loved because he wanted to he has the highest good of people in view that's what he does and that's what he did it lets us know by this love that the objects that are love are unworthy of it. <laughs> the objects that are being loved are unworthy of the love. We don't want to walk and say, you know, I'm worthy of God's love. No, you're not. Neither am I. You're not. If that's how you're thinking, you got a high view of yourself and a low view of God. We love someone or something. Love always has an object. You don't just love. <laughs> you know, I, I love. And love is never passive, always active. Always. If you love someone, you do something for that person. It's always active. This love right here, notice, it's a love that has taken place in the past, is still active in the present, and will carry on to the future. God, so love. Maybe we can say it this way. It is a love that has its origin in eternity, is demonstrated in time, and will be fully known in eternity. That love. Oh, it's a great love. The love goes beyond us. It is beyond us. Because it's a grand love of Almighty God. The soul lets us know that we cannot calculate this love. We can't add to it. We can't subtract from it. We can't multiply it. We can't divide it. It tells us that we cannot measure this love. It's so deep we can't reach the bottom of it, Brother Frank. It's so wide we can't wrap our arms around it. It's so high we can't reach to the top of it. This is a great love. It tells us that we can't even comprehend the distance of this love. It goes far and beyond. It goes to the east and the west 
north and the south. This love travels from state to state, town to town, city to city, country to country. This love cannot be shut out, shut in, shut up, or shut down. This love. We can't comprehend this love. It is beyond human comprehension. Do we understand that this love is personal? You understand it's a personal love. God has opened up his heart and said, look, I so love the world. I so love the world. Oh, it stretches far. It tracks down the person. It tracks down the object. This is a sinner-grabbing love. It grabs sinners. Maybe I should put it this way. Love does whatever it takes for the person's well-being. That's what love does. And God has demonstrated that by saying, let me show you how much I love the world. I'm going to give everything I have. I'm going to give my son. True love will do something. An act of love. It's a costly love. It's a deliberate love. It's a divine love. It's eternal love. It's a giving love. It's a heavenly love. It's a holy love. It's an inseparable love, a pursuing love, redeeming love, sacrificial love, a saving love. This love will track you down. God did it. (laughs) He showed us his love in giving us his son. He's so loved. Well, let's look at the gift. Not only the planner of the salvation, the motives of the salvation is great love. Let's look at the gift of the salvation. It's right there in that passage, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see it? The gift signifies that something was given up. God gave up something. We had nothing to give, but God gave up something. It means to hand over. Maybe I should put it another another way. An investment has been made. God made an investment. And he expects return on his investment. (laughs) He made an investment. It was the gift. The text tells us that it is the son. The greatness of the gift. The worthiness of the gift. Look at the gift. God so loved the world that he gave his his son, but not just his son. Notice what it says. His only son. It was all he had. His only son. He delivered up his son. As I said before, and I say a thousand times before I breathe my last, we talk about salvation being free. And it is to us, but it wasn't to God. It cost him everything. Everything. We should never take salvation lightly. We should never treat it cheaply. It cost God everything. Everything. If we were to go to God and say, what else do you have for me? God empty his pockets. Pull out his pocket and say, I give you everything I had. <laughs> I give you my son. Everything. We would have everything, and having his son is the 
only son, this unique son, meaning he's in a category by himself. He's one of a kind. There is none like him, none like Jesus. The gift is his son given to us. I'm going to keep saying that the gift is his son given to us. Oh, Matthew tells us, we should call, thou shalt, <clears throat> she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Listen, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's the gift. That's the gift to us. The son is also identified as the great Emmanuel, God with us. That's his identity. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the gift given to us, he shall save his people from his sin. That's his activity. He's the gift. Do we even understand what God gave? Do we understand it? Are we overwhelmed by this gift? He gave us a gift from heaven. From heaven. What do I have to give for these people? You, my son. You're the gift to them. What a gift. What, what, else, what else could, listen, what else could we ask for? <laughs> what else could we ask for in such a gift? That son will give his life. Why would we not want such a one? Why? I, oh, Brother Clarence, I think my sins just, just, they're just too great. Greater than the blood of Jesus? <laughs> Your sins greater than the blood of Jesus? Oh, my mother-in-law would know what I'm talking about when I say this. The old folks used to say about the blood of Jesus Christ. It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley. It gives you strength from day to day. It will never, never lose its power. Your sins? Stronger than the blood of Jesus? No way. It will never lose its power. God sent this glorious son, his gift to us, so that that son would live for us and that son would also die for us. That son would pour out his blood for us so that we could be covered. All of our sins could be covered. What did the blood cover us from? The wrath of Almighty God. Are you still with me? The wrath of Almighty God. That's where the blood covered us from. God is a consuming fire. It covered us from that, from that wrath of Almighty God. He tells us something else. Not only God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever. I said this a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. I love that whosoever. I hope you love it too. I love that whosoever in John chapter 16 because it gives me a place to plug my name. Whosoever. He didn't say John. He didn't say Paul. He just said whosoever. Clarence jumped right in the text. Whosoever I can put my name and I hope you can put your name. God has left the door wide open. Whosoever believes. Remember the serpent lifted up? You look, you live. He said, whosoever, whosoever believed, he didn't leave you out, but you're responsible. He said, whosoever believes should not perish, 
but having everlasting life. Let's look at the intention. The intention first, the gift of the son was to us that we may believe. That's in the text. John wrote his gospel. He tells us at the end when he gets to chapter 20, verse 31, he said, the reason I wrote this gospel is so that you may believe. God said, I'm, I'm, I'm writing. John saying, I'm writing it because I want you to believe. You either believe or you reject. You, you, you did know that, right? You either believe it or you reject it. There's, no, there's nothing else in between. You either believe on Jesus Christ or you reject Jesus Christ. You either want him or you don't want him. John said, I wrote this because I want you to believe. I want you to know Jesus to be the Christ. It's the only gift from God. It's the only Savior to us. God will not give us another Savior. This is it. That's it. He said, intentions that we may believe. And that's why I wrote this gospel, that we may entrust ourselves to Christ because, listen, he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. Whosoever, the word literally means anyone, everyone who believes could have Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The word belief here is reliance upon and confidence in Jesus. Reliance upon and confidence in Jesus. This belief is not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. You don't believe one time on Jesus. You continually believe Jesus. You continually trust Jesus constantly, day by day. It is a committing of my entire being to him. Young people, are you listening? It's a committing of my entire being to him. Listen, if you're not committed... You haven't believed. You haven't believed. If you're not committed, you have not believed. No matter what you say you believe, if you're not committed to Jesus Christ, you have not believed at all. The word belief has in it commitment. So if you believe, you're committed. If you're committed, it's because you believe. We are to trust him as our substitute in life. He lived for us. Trust him uh, as our substitute in death. He died for us. Trust him as our substitute in his resurrection. He rose for us. Trust him in his enthronement. He's seated for us. Trust him at the Father's right hand. He intercedes for us. And trust him in his return. He's coming back for us. We ought to trust Jesus. That's the intention we have in the passage so that we would believe. But there's another in there as well. Notice it's right there at the end of the verse. In him, believe in him, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. You see the negative? That we may believe, secondly, that we would not perish. We would not be eternally Miserable. Ruin forever. It is so that sinners who believe on the Son will not be separated from God forever. Do you see the love of God in here? So I'm demonstrating my love. I'm giving my Son so that you would believe and so that you would not perish. We deserve to perish. But I'm giving my Son so that you would believe and not perish. Said to Israel, why will you die 
whole house of Israel. Why? You can't read that chapter without being moved. This is great mercy from God. This is great love from God. Why, why perish when you can live? <laughs> why? Why perish when you can live? Why go to hell when you can have heaven? Are you still with me? Why perish when you can live? Why go to hell when you can have heaven? Why? Why? Why accept crumbs when you can have the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself? Why? Why settle for the least when you can have the greatest? Why? I want to know why. Please tell me. The result of this plan is right there at the end of the verse is everlasting life. It tells us all who believe, all who believe will have. Listen, will have as absolute, will have, possess in time eternal life. It's right there in the text. Will have eternal life. This life begins in time. Oh, we want to know the fullness of it in eternity. It begins in time. You must have this life now. You must have this life now or you won't have that life then. And we want you to have it. When all your sins pardoned, all your guilt's gone, when your soul could rest in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, that's what you want. He should give you that new body, that new body that cannot die. Oh, that renewed soul that can never sin. What a day that's going to be when you see Jesus, Jesus in all his glory. I want to put another plug in for the old folks. They had a song. They used to say, I knew it was the blood. I knew it was the blood for me. One day when I was lost, Jesus died upon the cross, and I knew it was the blood for me. But they had another one at the end. They would say, he's coming back again. He's coming back again for me. Oh, what a day that's going to be when we see Jesus and all of his loveliness, the king and his beauty, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. What a day that's going to be. We want everybody to know the same thing. If we don't take the sun, we don't believe on the sun, we don't want to see Jesus. We don't want to see Jesus. The day is coming when all those who believe on Jesus will enjoy the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we get to enjoy them right now. Right now. In the world to come, they will know the blessings and enjoyment of the great God without boundaries and without interruptions. Oh, what a day that's going to be. My voice, my children know, I'll be able to sing on key then. And if I'm not singing on key, no one would know anyways. <laughs> that, day, that day is coming when we will all blend together around the Lamb. Heaven is going to be about Jesus. Grandma may be there, but that's fine. But we just want to see the King. We just want to see the King. We want to see that great gift. Our eyes upon his eyes. And that day, faith shall be sight. Oh, God gave a great gift in giving his son for great sinners because he planned a great salvation. Can I say that one more time? God gave a great gift in giving his son 
his great son because he planned a great salvation. And that son willingly gave his life so that people like you, people like you and me, may have life. You can't add nothing to salvation. May I remind you of that? You can't add anything to salvation. But I will tell you, you do bring something to salvation. Listen carefully. You can't add anything to salvation, but you do bring something to salvation. You bring your sins. Without sin, there's no salvation. You do the sinning, and Jesus did the saving. We were not created to despise our maker. We were created to delight in our maker. Let us do so. Because he loved the world. And that love is beyond human comprehension. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for all that you give us. What a great love we have in Jesus Christ. Father, how you've come to us and how you've demonstrated your love. And God, please forgive us when we treat these things so lightly. Father, you have made a way so that we can have an eternal peace. A peace with you where we could approach your throne without trembling. And Father, forgive us when that peace has been rejected. God, please look upon mankind, we pray. Forgive us of our foolishness, our independency that we want, that we really don't have. God, teach us to trust you, we pray. I pray for outpouring of your spirit, that men, women, and children, even in this place, would be renewed in mind, and Jesus would be seen as altogether lovely. Father, help Brother Frank as he preaches your word this Sunday. Give him strength from on high boldness to preach. He would preach in the power and demonstration of your spirit. Help him and help all to hear your glorious word. Hear our cry now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.